Today you're going to meet Liz Kylie from Australia. Um, we're going to talk about the trip that she just came back from where her and her partner, Con, went from, well, they were planning, really. They, they didn't actually get there. They were planning to go from Australia to London, but they never did make it to London. They made it as far as Iran, and that's about it. They were supposed to be 12 months. They ended up being 16. A lot of stuff went on here, but what's really interesting is that Liz started out as a beginner rider, and of course now she has quite a bit of experience. She started out with the, just the thought process of the motorcycle was just just a means to an end, just transportation to get her there. And she's developed a real love for motorcycling. But there was a point in the trip where they both wanted to throw in the towel. They both were ready to pack it up and call it a day. And Liz, who could have already been described as a self-confident person, really learned something about self-confidence, travel, and motorcycling. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Fields. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Real World. Ben Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Chief Nico. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannon. Nathan Millwall. Andrew Colbatch. Joe Rowe. Crystal Bayer-Vajic. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Robert Wicks. Spencer Conlon. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. This is Liz Kiley um, and I'm from Australia, from uh, currently in Melbourne and uh, have just completed a, a long journey from uh, Melbourne through Southeast Asia and the Middle East to Iran on, on my motorcycle with my partner, Con. So Liz, I don't really hear a strong Aussie accent. What's happened there? Oh, really? <laughs> uh, perhaps that I've spent uh, nearly two years trying to make myself understood <laughs> In, uh, in Asia and the Middle East and uh, my partner has a really strong accent and no one could understand him, so I was the interpreter. So perhaps that's why. Wait a second now. You're both from Australia and you can actually hear that Khan has a, a stronger accent than you? I can. He. Uh, why is that? Uh, he When he's trying really hard to be understood, he drags out his words, which Australians do anyway, and then it just becomes more pronounced. So... So it gets uh, worse. It gets worse, yes. <laughs> That's funny. I, I, I've had uh, several travelers on here who have learned to speak English as a second language, and they say that every time they go somewhere, they have to learn English again because everybody says it's English, but it's completely different. They go to Australia, and then they go to London, and then they go to North America, and it's just all completely different. Many of the, many of the people overseas, particularly in the Middle East, said, what type of English do you speak? And would say, well... Same as everybody else, it's just a different accent. <laughs> well, this isn't your first trip. What other sort of trips have you done before this? I spent a lot of time in Canada when I was younger. That was my first ad- big adventure, Jim. I uh, cycled and canoed and skied around Alaska and the Yukon and uh, really wanted to, to immigrate there, but they wouldn't have me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting because I wanted to know how you got into doing adventures. You went off on a motorcycle adventure when you were 56, is that right? That's right, yeah. So what got you into, I mean, you're you're saying an adventure you had a long time ago in Canada. How did you get started doing this? To make a long story short, I 
I was always the perfect child and the perfect student, went through and went to university, became a teacher because that's what women did in those days, taught for two years and I looked at myself and I thought, is this it? Is this what I have been aiming for all these years? And I looked at my clothes, I was in high-end label clothes and I was so conservative and I was just had this deep-seated unhappiness and on reflection now, I guess what I was looking for was something more in life and um, my first trip was to Nepal and that's when I just thought this is where I belong. This is the sort of lifestyle that I really, really love. You know, you, you look back on your life and there's times when you're really happy and content and, and uh, when I'm travelling and when I'm in the outdoors, whether it's on a motorcycle or a bicycle, whether I'm walking or skiing, that's when I feel great. So I went back and retrained as an outdoor education teacher. It was the start of it. And uh, again, after a number of years, I um, decided I'd go to Canada. I just loved it. And probably the best years of my life were when I was traveling like that. So I always had that memory of what it was like. So when this trip came up as an opportunity, uh, secretly, my, my partner asked me, because he was always been a, a biker, and uh, we hadn't been together very long and this was his dream really. And uh, he said, is that something you'd like to do? And I said, it sure is. And uh, you only have to ask me once. So we're talking back in, in 2014 is when you left this trip. What was it supposed to be to begin with? Originally, it was a 12-month trip from Melbourne to London. And so there was a destination and there was a time we thought around about 12 months and then we thought at that stage that, well, Con, Con always thought he was just going to come back and move back into his house and um, we had two separate houses and I knew that secretly this was my opportunity to to explore something different and find out what else there is in, in life for me. And uh, so for him it was the ride, like, he's, you know, he, he – the trip was to ride. For me, the ride was to travel and so the bike was a form of, of transport and I wasn't in love with bikes and to be honest, I really couldn't quite understand why people liked bendy roads because I hated them. I, you know, I was a beginner rider. I only got my licence just before I left and so um, the riding was a, ch- a huge challenge. So it became... It, it, for me, it was just a, a way of travelling, but that changed as, as the trip went on because I've learnt to really love bicycles and love that way of travel and, yeah, so the, the, the trip changed throughout, you know, and I guess that's always the way with a, a long journey. It um, becomes a, starts with a destination but it's about the journey in the long run. You left in October 2014. The both of you set off on Suzuki DR650s, heading from Australia to London. So what was your planned route? Well, we only really, the route or route was not really set in concrete. So we went from Australia, Timor-Leste, over to Indonesia and through the islands, archipelago of Indonesia. After that to Malaysia. So from there you can go up to, to Thailand, uh, up through China or you can go west and go head across Pakistan. So we weren't sure about the visas but also I had a real block against going to Pakistan um, for many reasons and I, as a woman I didn't want to go um, and I'd read many blogs and, and stories about why it would be difficult as a woman. But in the end we t- decided to go that way partly because of finances. It didn't involve any plane trips across, you know, people fly their bike across Pakistan to avoid it. So we ended up going to Pakistan. It was one of the, the highlights of the trip. So, yeah, so the route was in, in stone and then we did really, we just made it up as we went, I guess. Did you already do motorcycle adventures or had this been your first outing on it? Because it was so much work packing up two houses, oh, leaving is really difficult. And... Um, didn't do a lot of riding. I'd only done two major trips, like three-day trips, which I called major at that time in Australia. Um, so I was really unprepared <laughs> in terms of skill level, really unprepared. And uh, 
Con was literally welding the frame to the for the side panniers on my bike the night before, and uh, yeah, we we left as we were. What was that like for the first few weeks? Because you you said you were you're a beginner. It was. I I became really fearful of being on the bike every day because we had. Both of us were really quite na- naive in a way about the condition of the roads, and uh, you know, before for the twelve months or so before we left, I would torture myself with looking up those websites uh, with the most dangerous roads. You know, people love to to label things the most dangerous, and I um, I'd say to Con, I can't do those roads. We won't be doing those, will we? And he goes, Oh no, we will just stay away from them. We'll just stay on the main roads and. He did want to do the Le Manali Road, so we thought maybe he would do it and I wouldn't. But as soon as we got to Timor and uh, headed further uh, across Indonesia, the roads were really, like most of our trip the roads were appalling. And you come from places like Canada and Australia, our infrastructure is just so fantastic. If you want to go off-road, you you seek the off-road, but... A lot of the riding was off-road, equivalent to off-road riding. And um, you know, even just driveways into hotels would just send me into this, into a sweat because they were steep or the driveway was full of big holes or big drop-offs. And um, I guess I became fearful because I never knew what the road was going to be like. And each day was just, it just became an adventure. And so... I was really learning along the way and I, I didn't even know how to do a proper U-turn <laughs> with a loaded bike. Um, what, when you say the roads are really bad, sort of describe that, what it's like to, to drive down the road. Well, you it would be broken up tar bitumen if it was tarred, really broken up, like it might be some some roads we went through, like in Sumatra, for instance. It looked like it had just had a big earthquake, and the earth had folded, and uh, the concrete was just like had big. Sorry, the tar, the bitumen had big folds in it, and then it might be just huge potholes. Like you just drive along, and then you'd be in a pothole up to your foot pegs, full of water. Um, so you, you, it was always slow riding, but. And then, and then, for instance, you might decide to go into to go up into a particular town or village, and then you look at the road and you go, "That is so steep, and I don't even know what it's going to lead to." So sometimes we would end up sending Con up the road to see what it was like, and he'd come back and go, "Oh, it'll be all right." And so you sort of it was like you you'd, you'd uh, you know, you go, well, we, we have to do this road and we're, we've just got to keep going. Um, and particularly in the monsoons because we hit the monsoons and some of the roads were just like huge mud patches and rutted and really muddy and quagmire. And so there were sections where I was really, really challenged. But you have to keep going. Aren't you wondering at that point what you're doing? <laughs> I mean, you're a new rider. You you just went and spent eight months packing up your house and renting it out and everything, and then you go out and you're slogging through that. Yeah, but you do wonder what you're doing. I think it was harder for Con watching me than it was for me because when you are really challenged by something, you just focus on the moment. That's what I do. I just go, this is what I have to do. And I have to, uh, this is what I have to do to get around this section. And you just take section by section and day by day. Um, I know there were highlights, you know, we're in a beautiful country and meeting amazing people. And so it's it's not all about the road, but initially a large part of it was about the roads and the wet and the rain. And, um, and as I said, I think it was probably more difficult for Con because you would say, you're just an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> and, you know, he, and what does he mean by me. that? Well, for, well, with motorcycling, a lot of it's about, you know, if you go too slow, it's, it's more difficult. You have to get a, a speed, you know, as associated with if you're going through. It's confidence, really. I mean, you, if you don't have the confidence to do it, then you end up having problems because of that. 
Yeah, and so I had to learn to ride, you know, ride faster and to be more confident and just just go for it. And uh, so, and I did, you know, and uh, I'm uh, not sure that I still feel like a great rider, but, you know, I've done 33,000 Ks and through some pretty challenging conditions, so I must be okay. You had to have learned something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> When was the point? How long into the trip did you start to feel comfortable where you weren't waking up every day? I mean, because I can't imagine how difficult that would be for you dreading the thought of getting on your bike in the morning. I know when, when I'm doing a trip, I am so stoked to get on my bike in the morning. I, mean, I can hardly wait to get packed up and get back on the road again. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that being the worst part of the adventure, at least to begin with. I probably didn't really get excited about being on my bike until I, well, Pakistan, the road started to get a little bit better uh, and there was less traffic. So we did the uh, Karakoram Highway. So once we hit roads that were roads and uh, less traffic, I I was really excited. And the the scenery is just spectacular in Pakistan and the people were just beautiful. Um, So and then moving into Iran, even the roads were – they were roads and uh, you could actually relax and uh, enjoy – and, and my skill level was improved. And I also, I guess, I, if you drop your bike, you drop your bike. You know, at first I used to feel like a failure if I dropped my bike and Con never drops his bike, you know. And it's just he was the only person I'd ever ridden with really. And so you're constantly measuring yourself against somebody who's been doing it all his life. And I learnt not to do that. And I think that's part of it is the self-talk as well that, um, look, you know, I'm a beginner. I can do this. I just have to do it my own way. And if I drop my bike, so be it. And also, we started to meet up with other people. Like we rode a lot with uh, with locals, and um, we met a, a couple of groups of other overlanders. And I realised that I wasn't that bad. You know, it wasn't like I was just this slow person at the back of the group. And I had a really, I guess, a light bulb moment in Thailand. We uh, there's some expats that we met, and uh, you know they automatically think because you're an overlander, you're just this like, wow, wonderful riders, and you know they're so excited to meet you. And I'd always think, oh, please don't watch me ride because I'm, <laughs> I'm so, so new at it. But we rode together, and uh, and I said to them originally, I said, look, I'm quite slow. Anyway, I wasn't slow, you know, compared with them, and. Uh, they said to me, one of the women said to me, you're not slow at all. Like, And so I think women in particular are really, you know, it's all, we're so vulnerable to criticism. We always think we're not good enough. And, you know, women always think that, you know, I'll do this when I've lost weight or I'll do this when I'm better at it. But you just have to get out there and just do it. And that's what I did in the end. I had no choice. And so it was about self-talk and then I started to enjoy it because, hey, I was on this wonderful trip and who cares how I do it? I just did it my way. You're saying self-talk. You're beating yourself up, basically. You're, you're um, putting yourself down because you drop your bike or you can't handle the bike the same as what you thought you should. Yes, yes. And uh, so even though it was, it was about my skill level, it was also about how I felt about myself. Uh I didn't expect motorcycling to be so require such high skills, and I think on the roads it's uh, I can manage that. But you know, when you're constantly doing U-turns in tight positions and in heavy Asian traffic and on dirt roads and muddy roads, then you know it's uh, it's all about the skills. And Con didn't expect it either because he he said I've forgotten how much there is to learn. So. Yeah, it's and so yeah, you're right. It's about it's just how you feel about yourself and you just do it your way. Interesting that you say about how women will often, you know, think, Well, I'll do it later, you know, when I when I have gained the skills or whatever the case is. And with guys it's the opposite. You know, they don't have the skills. A lot of times a guy will not have the skills and he'll just blindly go forward on the assumption I'm a guy, of course I can ride <laughs> and yeah. and just go on that. Where it makes it more difficult for sure if you're critical of yourself. It, it does, and um, 
and really some a lot of people don't even don't even try because you know like for instance well that that group that we met this woman said I really want to do a trip like yours but I'm not good enough yet uh, of course you're good enough <laughs> you know you just if you can if you can ride a motorcycle if you can stop and start you know you, you can learn along the way I mean you have to have I couldn't have done the trip that I did on the bike that I did because it, they, you know I couldn't pick it up but I, I think in retrospect I could have done it my own on a smaller bike so it's about I guess just trying to get an assessment of what your skills are and make it as easy for yourself as possible. Well, a DR650 is not exactly a, a small bike by any stretch of the imagination. There's um, a lot of people who would think that bike is really too big, for, especially as a beginner bike. It probably was too big for me, um, but it's also great to have the, the torque, the power, and so I learned to love it. Um, you know, at first I, I felt like it was just this big stallion that I couldn't control and in the end it was just my donkey. <laughs> um, and it was important for us to have compatible bikes. Uh, so I guess I, I grew into it. And um, But if I did it again, I probably wouldn't take a DR650. If I did it on my own, I'd go for something smaller, something a little bit more manageable. And it's smart to travel with two of the same bikes, of course, for obvious reasons when it comes to parts or breakdowns, so you can swap things back and forth to, to figure out what's wrong. But, but I want to ask you about confidence. Did this trip do something for you as far as, you know, just personal confidence? It did an amazing things for me uh, in terms of personal confidence. Um, I think, look, I think I will, people would look at me and say I'm confident already. Uh but inside you often, I don't think anyone really feels the confidence that they portray on the outside or certainly women, I think women don't. But um, I have just learnt to, uh, to it's, it's about that, that self-talk, I guess, and uh, if I have a, an idea about something I really want to do, I now go with it more. One of the things that I, I actually really explored while I was away was writing. Um, now I have a background in English as an English teacher. English teachers are supposed to be able to write, right? <laughs> um, I would think so, yeah. <laughs> but they have no time to write because they're, they're too busy correcting students' work. So I hadn't. I knew that I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to, uh, to explore that. Um, and to actually put up a blog and to put yourself out there as a writer, that's really challenging oh, that's, for me. That's the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, that's something different altogether because as soon as you start writing stuff and putting it up, you're open to criticism. I think that's got to be the one of the scariest things that goes along with public speaking, I think, in my mind. It is. And you, and you so you, it's another form of vulnerability. And uh, the first time I put it up, you know, I was really nervous. But I got great feedback and continue to get great feedback. But in the end, what I learned was I'm not writing for anyone else. I'm writing for me and I'm writing for me and I'm not writing for anybody else. And even now, when since returning, you know, a lot of my friends have said, oh, you need to write a book, Liz. And at first I'd say, well, what, do I, what would I say? You know, what would you want to read? And then in the end I decided, you know what, if I write a book, it'll be what I want to write and it'll be about because I want to write it and I'll say what I want to say and it may even not get published. It's, I'll just write it because I want to write it. And so it's not about what other people think. You just do things for yourself, you know. It's not about anybody else. It's about me and uh, following through with my ideas and and I've continued to write and I've uh, continued to and I've had a couple of articles published Um you know, and I was really surprised when they accepted them for the uh, couple of uh, magazines, motorcycle magazines. Uh, but, you know, I, ga- I gave it a go. I put myself out there and what's the worst that can happen? They can say no. Um, but I write because I love it and I really want to continue that. So in terms of my confidence, uh, if you if I've got an idea, I just I go through it for myself and just explore it. 
I'm not really surprised that they took your articles because I, I read one of your pieces on about the uh, the CIA uh, town uh, that you, oh, yes. you did a blogging trip. Really well done. I noticed that you you more than write about. As a matter of fact, I don't think you really write about from what I saw so much about the motorcycle journey. It's about the places and the experience um, of your travels. Yes, yeah, and that's why I travel. It's uh, to to meet the the to. Yeah, for, just to meet the people and uh, learn something. I love history, love the history of the places we've been to and just meeting. I like to go to out-of-the-way places, uh, remote places. You mentioned that um, you sort of didn't feel that great about the motorcycle until later on. Now, when looking back, what's great about the DR650? Well, motorcycles in general, I just, I just get that feeling of freedom and that's what I remembered about cycling is that just being outdoors and just being at one with the environment and being able to go anywhere you know you can you can take the bicycles especially the DR650 many places that a vehicle couldn't go and uh, uh, I, I would I wouldn't ever want to do any traveling now in a ve- in a car uh, we talked about it, you know, about whether it would be good to do it in a van or um, something like that. But it's just that feeling of being at one with your bike and it just takes you anywhere, you know. We went to some amazing places that you wouldn't you wouldn't normally go and you could look at a map and in the end I got addicted to looking at maps and going, oh, look at that road, I wonder where that takes us, you know. Um, gee, that looks challenging and... Especially in northeast India, some of the roads were incredible, incredibly um, windy, and you, uh, you know they're just really remote. Arunachal Pradesh and up around Nagaland, and just got addicted to 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 looking for roads like that and seeing what we could find. And uh, so it's just the freedom of it; it's fantastic. Well, we have a lot more to talk to Liz about coming up in just a minute. But the website, I want you to go to www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Aerostitch will give you 10% off on your first purchase or free shipping on your next order if you're an existing customer just for going to that web address. That also tells them it comes here, comes from here, Adventure Rider Radio. The best way... To ride more is to make your riding the easiest, fastest way to get from A to B, whether it's simple everyday commuting, errands, long distance riding, whatever. Doesn't matter what kind of riding you do. Aerostitch has been doing it for 33 years. They've been designing, making, selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, more comfortable, and more fun. And no other gear offers the proven protection, precision fit, and lifelong value as Aerostitch gear. Drop by their website, check it out yourself. They've got a ride more guarantee if you buy any Aerostitch one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter suit. You try it for a month and you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you send it back, get a full refund, no questions asked. Drop by their website to see the details, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, let them know you heard them here. We're going to go right back to Liz in a minute. But first, have you been to the Giant Loop website lately? If you haven't, you got to go there. You look at their new products for 2016. 32 products listed new for 2016. I mean, really, it's expanding quickly. You know Giant Loop Moto? They're well known for incredibly durable waterproof bags, especially if you're riding a dual sport bike. You want to ride light. You want to go fast. Giant Loop, that's the one. It is, according to Cycle World magazine, the best hardcore saddlebag and tank bag solution we've found is from Giant Loop. That's that's a quote from them. And it continues, there's cheaper solutions to carrying stuff, but these American-made pieces have been over mountains and across deserts with no issues. That says something. I mean, that, that quote in itself. Drop by their website, giantloopmoto.com. And if you use the promo code ARR, you're going to get free shipping in the U.S. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. You got to Iran, you mentioned after 16 months. What was the timeline you originally had? How long were you going to be on the road? 12 months. 12 months. So 16 months, you just made it to Iran. How much further did you have to go to London after that? Oh, I'm not sure how many in kilometers, but we we thought maybe another two or three months. So another two or three months after that. You you never did get to London, did you? Not yet, anyway. No, not yet. (laughs) But did you sell your house? No. No, so you've kept your house, but you, you, you're you not back in your house. 
No. Uh, we're house-sitting. We have this amazing place that we have. We're so lucky. It's just a gift, really. Uh, I have an eight-month house-sit on 10 acres and the Daddy Nong Rages outside of Melbourne. So neither of us really want to make the commitment of moving back into our house yet because that means getting jobs, going back into the old lifestyle and we've, uh, we really want to go again. And uh, when that happens or how that happens, I'm not sure. But uh, so for the next eight months, we've got this amazing place here. So that's fantastic. I mean, you you were 56 when you left. You, you said you're now 58. And you've got this wanderlust in you now because of this trip. Not something you started out with, but because of this trip, you have this wanderlust where you actually don't want to go home. You're avoiding going home, really. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> You, you want to stay out longer. Now, you're, you, as you said, you're looking after this place. You, you mentioned in your paperwork that you, um, you still have to go to London. I can tell that seems like a, or at least it seems like a clear goal for you. It feels like for my partner, it's more of an um, unfinished business. For me, it's less of a, an issue because I don't care where I go. Like, you know, it's just a journey. Um, it would be nice to say that we did, for some reason, you know, that's what people do. They go from Melbourne to London. And for a while there I felt like it was, oh, we only made it to Iran. Um, but it doesn't matter. You know, like I said, it's about it's about us. It's not about where we finish and uh, Melbourne to Iran's that's respectable. <laughs> what was it like riding in Iran for you? Oh, Iran is my favourite, absolute favourite. Um, it's just a big, again, it's one of those countries where there's so much bad media like Pakistan, um, you know, Sharia law and women have to cover up and I was dreading that. And, and aren't women banned from riding in the roads? They are. They are, the locals. Um, because you're not a local, you are allowed to ride? That's right. Well, I'm assuming, uh, I don't know what the law is, but nobody s- stopped us. They often don't know what to do with us when they when they meet us. We're sort of like Martians, really. So, um, no, they never, uh, no, the policemen never said, never, you know, even, con- we're concerned. They give us a second look and give me a second look. But women, uh, people were excited to meet us and especially me as a female rider, in Pakistan, I felt like they just wanted to protect me. You know, it was very protective, the men were. But in Iran, it was, oh, this is fantastic. It's so exciting to see a woman riding. One man in particular who had done a lot of touring himself, um, you know, he would say, I'm going to ride with you because I have never ridden with a woman before. And he was really proud and so excited. And, you know, the, the people in Iran are just so desperate for, for, you know, these freedoms and uh, they live their lives irrespective of the law and, um, you know, the women as well, you know, in their own homes they live just like you or I do and, uh, you know, they're very liberal in their thinking. The people that we met, of course there are the, the conservative uh, uh, people but, you um, just so welcoming of us and I just felt I felt really comfortable in Iran as a woman, felt very respected, um, really respected as for who I was and how I was dressed and, yeah, just it, it was great. And people were so the – road, the roads are fantastic, the scenery is fantastic, the mountains are fantastic, camping, I could get back to camping, real wild camping in Iran, felt safe. And the people are just amazing. So it's hospitable. It was just fantastic. There was a point on your ride where you sort of got tired of the ride. Can you talk about that? Yeah. In um, By the time we'd uh, crossed Pakistan, uh, crossed Balochistan, which is the western part of Pakistan, where you, you, it's the tribal area and you have to be escorted and you're picked up by police escorts. You know, you just go... Finally, at one of the checkpoints, they'll pick you up and you're, you're escorted and you have no freedoms. You have to stay in the hotel at night. You, um, it's very tedious, very slow, um, and it was very hot. It was across the, the desert. And I just got 
we, we were both really burned out and uh, I just wanted to go home. I was missing my family. Uh, it just got really hard. It wasn't fun anymore. Uh, and uh, so it, it just, it, we both wanted to. I don't think that if we were even talking about not even going any further, not finishing. And um, so after, because we were under escort for five days across Pakistan and into Iran and we had some really awful experiences at first in Iran under that, our um, escort um, and it was just, it was probably the most difficult time and our relationship was really suffering too. It was just, it was just, it was, everything was hard. The writing was hard. I was tired. We were exhausted and we had no choices. So what we did was I have, fortunately I have a brother in UAE and so we just said, well, let's just go to UAE, go across there and, and reassess uh, where we'll go after that. And uh, we came home for Christmas and uh, and recharged ourselves, and then went back again. When you went back, was it sort of you know with apprehension? Yes, real apprehension. I just wasn't sure that I wanted to start again. I just, uh, you know, it's we really missed our families. I really missed my my sons, you know, and I felt like you now when I decided to leave, they were uh, nineteen and twenty one, and um, oh, they'll be fine, you know, they're independent, they're all set up, you know, they'll be fine. And then I realised that I was missing out on my young sons becoming adults and I really got quite sad about that. Um, when I came home it was great to see them and then I thought, oh, look, you know, I'm not sure how long we'll be away again and really missed that sort of ability to make a have a relationship with my adult children. And But, um, but then when, once we got back... Uh, we probably dragged our feet again. We stayed at UAE and uh, dragged our feet, to ta- our feet to take off. And we took off to Oman first and, oh, that was like, yes. I was only on my bike for a few hours. I go, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. This is fantastic. And there was another country that I loved. And You mean because of Oman or because you're back on your bike? Both, both. Um, Oman was a great country to get back onto on my bike because – the roads were again were it was easy easier riding at first, um, uh, but the countryside was just beautiful and we could get again the camping you know I just love camping and being able to go off road and we actually you know had a book called Oman Off Road and we we really searched out for the off road trails and it's just spectacular. What's it like? Describe it. It's uh. It's um, beautiful, large uh, mountain ranges that go through quite remote villages. And um, I'm not very good with the geology, but the geology of the mountains is just this pure rock that's been folded and um, sort of uh, looks looks quite volcanic, I guess. But you just ride up these dirt roads and very, very steep, like incredibly steep roads. And then you can just camp anywhere. Like you can just camp, and they have wadis. Wadis are um, like river valleys that you can you ride through. You just go from wadi to wadi, and you just camp in the most beautiful places with the most incredible views. So you know, like the, the uh, you just head up to those really steep roads, like thirty degree uh, slope, and uh, end up with this eagle nest views and and then there'd be beautiful villages and people who welcome you there um so so the people were really welcoming you found you'd ride into these remote villages and they're they're fine oh incredible yeah Amman's a great place it's probably a, a place that not many people go to because it's quite you know you have to ship your bike across the persian gulf and it's a bit expensive to do that um but it's just yeah the people are uh, incredibly welcoming. So uh, Oman, and then we went back to UAE and went back to Iran, and we spent a month in Iran. So we had a thirty-day visa. Oh, so that was that, that's a completely different experience than the first time because you'd mentioned that you had awful experiences at first when you were being led in from Pakistan. So the second time in, you're actually, I guess, getting more of a feel for the place. Yes, uh, 
really expected that Iran to be really, you know, everyone raves about Iran, anyone who's ridden there, and we expected it to be fantastic. But the first three days, we were, as I said, we were quite worn out and we are being escorted away. From, you're always escorted away from the border, so the border areas are a little bit more um, difficult. So this time we just went straight up to, you know, to the, um, oh, well, we were away from the borders and we weren't under escort and uh, it was a completely different country. And, uh, you know, in the 30 days, I think we had in hotel three nights, we camped as well, but the rest of the time we were in people's homes, just randomly invited into somebody's house Uh and fed beautiful food and really looked after. So when you say random, you mean you're stopping and asking people where you can stay, or you don't even have to stop and ask. They just stop and ask you. They stop and give you food. <laughs> <laughs> One day we were stopped just for we stopped for a coffee, and uh, we're just standing there. We hadn't even bought our coffee, and this car drove past. It was a highway, and then next minute he's reversing towards us and all the d- doors opened and the family jumped out and the father jumped out with a handful of nuts that he poured into our hands and, and a piece of fruit and didn't speak any English and they all smiled and jumped back in again and, and drove off. <laughs> uh, you know, it's and that happens every day. It's It's incredible. You only have to stand and look at a map or look at your GPS or be wandering around and someone will say, are you okay? Do you need anything? And they do that in Amman. It's that question, do you need anything? Do you need water? Are you okay? And there's no, they don't They do not do it for uh, to get anything out of it themselves. They just want to see that you're okay and to help. If you start talking and they speak English, then they'll, they'll often say, we'd love to invite you around for lunch or, um, you know, we'd love you to stay. Um, and you don't always have to say yes, of course, but uh, that happened all the time. In some parts of the world we felt like we were invited to people's homes because there was a bit of a kudos, you know, in to have a, they call them in Indonesia, they call you farangs, like they have a word for for the white sort of Westerners and it felt like that was sort of gave them a bit of kudos, you know, to have uh, to have us around. But in Iran and Pakistan and Oman, there was none of that. It was just to be kind and uh, go out of their ways to be kind and to help and, and excited, excited to meet new people. I felt feel like Iran is one of those countries where, you know, they – the tourism has really, you know, since the um, Islamic Revolution and um, you know, like a, a black curtain was uh, put down around the country and the, the people are starving for, for, for contact with the outside world and, and starving for contact with people and, and they really are concerned about how you view them as well. Like, oh, you know, it's always what do you think of our country, what do you think of Iran and just love being there. You'd mentioned about riding the highest and most dangerous roads in the world, and, and I, I saw that you made a note and said they aren't really. No, they're not. <laughs> you rode those high mountain passes with the big drop-offs, and you still don't think they're that dangerous? No, I, I don't think they're that dangerous. Uh, I didn't really feel scared on those roads. They're challenging. Parts of them are challenging, and there's always the unknown. There's, you know, there's landslides, there's snow, there's creek crossings, but... They're wide enough for two trucks, you know. If a car, if a road's wide enough for two trucks, I'm not going to fall off the edge. And you know, you have to pull off to let the trucks go aside. And the, you know, the trucks do come very close to you. But I was on more dangerous roads in other countries that I thought were, were very dangerous. You know, in Amman we rode dangerous roads. They were steep. They were slippery. Big drop offs. Um, you know, I don't want to to detract from the people that have been there. And it is, it's definitely an adventure, but then they're not, how do you say something's the most dangerous road in the world? It's, uh, and a lot of it is about how you prepare yourself too. I saw a lot of people on those roads that were ill-prepared, just the wrong clothes and the wrong tyres and that makes things, you know, adventure. I always think of adventure and misadventure 
And uh, misadventure is when you haven't prepared yourself properly and you're not riding it within your skill level and you're not prepared and your bike's not prepared. And so that's what makes it dangerous. Um, And people do fall off the edge, but, hey, you know, people have accidents in the middle of Melbourne. Uh, You know, volcanoes erupt and there's landslides and that's just... It's it's part of life is those uh, those dangers. There's danger everywhere, but to to build these up as the most dangerous roads in the world, it's it's just I just didn't think they were at all. What's the big thing that you've learned through your travel? There's a couple of things that this fear is. Uh, I keep coming back to is um, people love to to tell you that the next country is going to be dangerous or the next village is going to be dangerous. Don't ride on that road because it's really dangerous. It's going to, there's bandits on that road. I don't know how many times we were told that. And, you know, uh, my family, some of my family members that say, you know, I really don't want you to go to Pakistan or Iran. It's too dangerous. Well, every every time I was warned about that, there was, you go, what people think it is is always different from what it really is. Um, and you don't go in naively, but you do your research and, like I said, you prepare yourself. And, uh, you know, I, so, I certainly wouldn't go to Afghanistan, I wouldn't go to Syria and I wouldn't go to Iraq, but you just can't listen to all these fear mongers. And uh, people are great wherever you go. The whole world is full of good people. And uh, people in a whole country are not going to go out and the whole country is not after you, you know. The majority of people in those countries are beautiful and really kind and caring and they're not out there to rape you, murder you, molest you. Um, And if you hear of someone who's been, had an unfortunate experience in a country, it's only one story, you know. There's another story, a million other stories, good stories about those countries. It's interesting that you say that um, the it's those single stories that you hear, the, a negative story that sort of sticks in your mind. And that's not really how our mind works for other things. And it is for that sort of thing. I know it is because um, people, it sort of stands out. It's, it's, I guess, that rare thing. And we tend to be attracted, as I think, as humans to rarities. We seem to ignore the common of, of just about everything. Yet when it comes to our own memories maybe throughout childhood, et cetera, you tend to forget the terrible things that happened to you. It's, it's awful selective of us, isn't it? There's at times we focus on those negative things and the other times we actually just let them go and only remember the good times. Yeah, I don't understand that either. And I know that I've done it myself. Um, when we're going, thinking about Pakistan, I read a blog of a, of a couple who had been there and she got groped quite, you know, and it was she was in quite a scary situation and ended up, they ended up putting their bike on the train for a while and that's all I remembered. You know, that's all I remembered about that blog um, and that was it, you know. I didn't want to go there. Um, so now I, I say to myself and when other people say to me, oh, what was the worst thing that ever happened and what was the most dangerous situation you are in, I'm going, oh, I don't know, let's just talk about the good things because I don't think anything really bad happened to us. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road provides world-class motorcycle training to new and avid motorcyclists. They've been doing it since 1996. Now, you know PSSOR if you've been listening to the show because you hear Brett Tax on here doing our rider skills. Why do we have Brett on here? Because he is a pro. And that's certainly the product that they put out at PSSOR. They've got a couple of different things, uh, well, probably a bunch of different things you'd be interested in, but a couple of specific for us adventure motorcyclists. They've got the ADV training camps and the ADV training exhibitions and tours. Now, they're both slightly different, but they're what you need as an adventure motorcyclist because the thing is, you want to get out there and you want to get some additional training. doesn't matter what your skill level is. You can always learn more. And I always say that's the thing that I love about motorcycling. The adventure training camps run May, June, and July, and um, the training expedition tours are July and August. Really, I think the difference is the training camps, you sort of stay in one spot and you learn your skills. The expeditions, uh, expedition slash 
tours they have on their website uh, that run in July and August. They're more of you're learning while you're riding. So both of them awesome ways to learn and you can learn from Brett or people that work with Brett um, at that skill level. PSSOR.com. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Let's talk about your um, your bike. I want to ask you actually some questions about your bike and your gear and yourself as far as getting prepared for other people out there who might want to take a trip similar or, or a tr- even a different trip. But sort of draw from what you've learned from your experience. What do you think is most important with your bike prep, right, with your DR650? I, I know you lowered that, but that ne- wouldn't necessarily be um, everyone's choice. But what other things about that do you think are really important? Um. I think you've got to have a really all, an all-purpose bike because you might think that you're just going to stick on the main routes, but that just doesn't happen for a lot of reasons. So, uh, when you say all-purpose, are you talking a dual sport bike? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, especially through Southeast Asia, uh, you really need to be riding comfortably and safely. A dual-purpose bike, and also to give yourself options about where you go. Uh, you need to make sure um, we went through lots and lots of brake pads uh, because of the the nature of the traffic and stop go and you know slow riding. Um, make sure your bike is really the brake pads. You've got a good clutch because the clutch and the brakes get a big workout. Con's clutch um, wore out in uh, Thailand because you know his his bike was quite it was second hand. And uh, had had quite a hard life, so we didn't realise that the clutch was um, was going to give way. So that was an issue. I guess the other thing is that the Suzuki DRs are fantastic bikes, but it's quite difficult to get spare parts for them in Asia. And so that was the biggest negative about them. But it doesn't mean you don't take them. It just means that you have uh, appropriate spare parts, or you have someone at home who can post things and get them for you. You know, if you've got a reputable your, your bike dealer at home who might be, you know, prepared to send post things at parts over for you, it's a lot of breakdowns that happen out there. But you know, we didn't have anything ma- really major apart from the clutch, but we managed that through having a bike shop at home that could send uh, clutch plates over. What else? I th- really, you should have done a. Um, uh, a practice trip, like a, I think, a, an extended with your gear, um, your bike as it was set up before you left. But you know, we didn't really do that very well. <laughs> Did uh, you end up could. sending a lot of stuff home? No, we we thought we would be able to send them home, but postage is very expensive, and so we ended up. I just gave away a lot of stuff. Mm. Because most people say they overpack. I mean, that that even happens on smaller trips that you go on. You, you find you just take far too much stuff. But a lot of people talk of posting stuff back, you know, within a month of departure. Yeah. Well, we didn't, we actually don't have a lot of uh, really high-end gear. Uh, we're both pretty thrifty and we also decided that if you have to spend all your money on decking yourself out, you'll have less money for travelling. And because I was new to riding, I had to get new gear. So it wasn't high-end. Con used the stuff that he had. His panniers were like about 15 years old. My top box was bought from a garage sale. We made, Kent Con made a lot of stuff to go, you know, he fitted out the bikes. He's a fitter and turner by trade. So we really went frugally with the, the gear. And so you don't have that attachment. And so hey, look, you know, this cost me $5 or $10. Someone else can have it. I gave away a lot of clothes to people who needed them and I figure that's, you know, if I don't need it, someone else does. And so, so yeah, so in answer to the question, I didn't, we didn't need to send stuff home because we weren't really that attached to it. What about bags? Did you take, um, it sounded like you had, uh, like Con had hard panniers. Did you both have hard panniers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I had... Uh, yeah, we both had hard panniers. I ended up having an accident and broke my foot with one in Thailand, so I ended up... Uh, that was the one broken bone. I saw you had one broken bone. Yeah, that's right. Your leg got caught underneath your pannier and broke your foot? Yeah, uh, Hikom was riding up ahead of me and um, and I dropped the bike. It was in roadworks and uh, I got my foot pinned under the... He made these uh, steel frame, lockable frames for the panniers because we, you know, we made sure everything was lockable 
and um, and I was pinned under the my foot was under the bike and I was on top of it and I was on my own so uh, yeah it broke a bone uh, in Thailand but it was a good place to to break a bone because we could stop and rent a house for a while and wait for it to heal. <laughs> I guess if there's a good place to break a bone. So you were back on the road in how long? Uh, Ten weeks. What about gear? What about your personal gear? What did you learn from this trip that um, about your gear or about gear you don't have or you didn't have with you that um, you should have? Um, I don't think there was anything that we should have had. Uh, when we got up into the Himalayas, we didn't have enough warm gear because we'd actually left it back in Indonesia because we were didn't want to carry it. Um, you can buy things along the way. And uh, as I said, we're not really top-end gear people and hunted around in the Himalayas to find a woolen couple of woolen sweaters. And Okay, hang on a second. There's, there's a problem here, Liz. You're making this sound all too easy. You almost <laughs> make it sound like anybody could do this. Well, I think anyone can do it. I think Anyone can do it, uh, and I'm telling you, we had a really li- limited budget. Just take off with whatever gear you've got. You can get gear along the way. You think, you know, sure, you're not going to get polar fleeces and all the modern uh, clothes. I mean, I gave my really good polar fleece away in Indonesia, and I picked up a, a woolen sweater in, um, we, we got two in uh, on the Srinagar Lay Road because we were, going up to altitude and we didn't have enough warm clothes and we just picked it up. I picked up some thermals in India and, uh, you know, they're not not top of the range but they're okay. And then, as I said, if you you don't spend a lot of money, you're not actually attached to it. And so we didn't need it anymore, just gave it away. I don't know how many headscarves I've given away to people. (laughs) I really like that attitude though. Of, you know, if you don't spend much on it, then it, it doesn't mean that much to you. So if it gets stolen, broken, lost, whatever, who cares? You move on. Yeah, that's right. Where are your bikes now? They're, oh, we think they're on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> we think they're uh, on a ship from Tehran home. We actually had to come home because Con's mother is very ill. Um, and Iran is not a country where you can leave your bike. So we had to make the choice. Do we leave them here? or ride somewhere where we can leave them or do we just ship them home? And we had to make a really quick decision and they we think they've left anyway. And where will you go next? I'm actually quite keen to do a big trip in Australia first before we go anywhere else. Um, we're also entertaining Africa. Uh, I'm really quite happy being in Australia at the moment and, as I said, catching up with my sons and enjoying their company so Australia's easy, you know, because it's your own country and, and it's got some great places to travel. So that's the, that's the idea at the moment. Liz, it was great talking to you and you ride safe. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it as well. That was Liz Kiley from her at least temporary home in Australia. And you can find out more about Liz and Con and the adventures they've done and I guess the adventures they will be doing by visiting their website, www.roostersoverland.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And I, I tell you what, we got something new going on for the summer. We're actually starting something else. Now, we've got this show, we've got the Raw show that I'm sure you've heard of. you got to go subscribe to that separately, uh, ARR Raw, the Roundtable Discussions. But another project that we're doing this summer, it's called Backroad Wanders. And you can drop by uh, the Backroad Wanders website, which is backroadwanders.org, and check out what we're doing. It's going to be a video and audio. Uh, adventure for us because we'll be doing a podcast and a video series but drop by the website www.backroadwanders.org and uh, you can also find us on Facebook it should be a link I think we're going to put a link to that um, from our Adventure Rider Radio Facebook page but so have a look this is a slightly different adventure for us this is by Four Wheel Drive by Jeep and uh, on this uh, series that we're going to be doing that'll be coming out next year we're going to be exploring the gold rush of British Columbia and the Yukon should be a lot of fun drop by and check it out I'm Jim Martin. Oh, and special thanks, of course, to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, for always working diligently in the background, getting things done. We really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Oh, and could I also remind you before I go here that um, you can always drop by the website. We certainly appreciate it. If you'd like to drop by the website and donate something for the show, we have built it on a model of having some advertising and donations finance the show. So if you can do it, drop by the website, click on the donate button. And as soon as you do anything, $10 or more, we're going to send you back a gift in the mail. to Adventure Rider Radio and this is Tiffany Coates on the line from Land's End in England.